1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The vast majority of the 20 million or so people in the world's waste industries are informal workers, given little security and even less respect. We look at a sector in which the pandemic has made hard work much harder and more dangerous. And for old-fashioned low-tech communication at a distance, what you need is a megaphone. And if the intended recipient is two kilometers away, you need a mega megaphone. We examine the new technology behind a very loud hailer. First up though, In March, as the world shut down, stranding millions, it seemed as if public markets would also freeze in the face of uncertainty. Then, a month later, Carnival Cruise Lines secured a multi-billion dollar lifeline.
2: As the cruise industry shuts down, Carnival was quick to free up its access to cash to tide it over. It's raising $6 billion in stock and debt.
1: At the time, it seemed mystifying. Cruise ships with names like World Dream and Oasis of the Seas became synonymous with anything but pleasure. But in retrospect, that loan was a spark that lit capital markets aflame. Fast forward to the end of 2020, and those markets are soaring. Cash has been flowing in to old stalwarts such as AT&T, tech giants such as Amazon, and some newly public companies. Airbnb has now filed its uh, IPO, and this is a highly anticipated listing, of course. Eel could value JD Health at nearly $29 billion.
3: DoorDash is expected to price its IPO after the market close. It could be uh, one of the largest offerings of the year.
4: The
1: question is, what happens
4: next? This year has been a record year for capital raising by non-financial firms around the world.
1: Jan Petrovsky is our business editor.
4: They raised something like $3.6 trillion in capital. And uh, perhaps more astonishingly still, the year saw something like $538 billion in secondary stock sales by listed companies. And that is up by 70% from last year. And um, finally, initial public offerings by technology firms and firms in other industries are also flirting with all time highs. So let's wind back to March,
1: April, when those kinds of numbers would have been impossible to imagine. What is it that, that led markets to loosen up and go on these tears?
4: Markets initially froze, and it was quite astonishing just how quickly they began to thaw. Within about a month of the stock market crash, the capital markets reopened for business. And the first big deal, which really sort of set the year of capital raising on fire was a $6.25 billion deal that Carnival Cruise Lines managed to raise. And that is probably because it is a, a large and successful company in the industry. And investors might have concluded that the pandemic will one day pass, people will one day go back onto the decks of cruise ships, and that Carnival will have seen many of its smaller, weaker competitors founder. And obviously at the same time, you had governments really getting their act together and acting incredibly quickly in trying to avert absolute economic catastrophe with stimulus packages into trillions of dollars. That meant, in turn, that there was a, a lot of capital sloshing around.
1: But we're now well, well past that that extremely tense period. Why has the trend persisted?
4: It was clear that many companies are actually almost benefiting from lockdowns, especially America's and, and in fact, the world's biggest listed firms, which really came into their own during the pandemic. You know, it's very difficult to imagine life these days without Amazon deliveries of Microsoft's cloud computing products, which enable homework, or for that matter, Netflix, which makes life after work at home somewhat tolerable in the age of social distancing. So a lot of these companies either were perceived to gain an edge over weaker rivals, or were benefiting directly from the havoc wreaked by the pandemic.
1: And you mentioned that it's a, a phenomenon not restricted to American tech firms, or indeed to America.
4: No, this is a global phenomenon. China, if anything, has been even frothier, or markets in China have been even frothier than in the West. So you have a company called Nongfu Spring, which is China's biggest water bottler, China's answer to something like Evian. And that share issue earlier this year was over 1,000 times oversubscribed. And the share price pop after the company began trading in Hong Kong briefly made its founder, China's second richest man. And um, elsewhere in the world, for instance, Saudi Aramco, which is Saudi Arabia's giant oil company, managed to raise something like $2 billion from the sale of 50-year bonds. And if you think about it, by 2070, when these bonds come due, the oil industry will probably be a shadow of its former self.
1: And on that matter of bonds, though, what will happen to all that money? That, that money has to be paid back sometime, if, even if not in 50 years.
4: So for the time being, companies are still sitting on a lot of the cash that they have raised. They're not really spending it. That's because the fog of COVID uncertainty has yet to lift. There is a little bit of new merger and acquisition activity. For instance, a few days ago, AstraZeneca, which is one of the big drug makers which is producing a COVID vaccine said it would splurge over $30 billion on an American biotech firm. So there is some movement, but for the time being, it's still pretty cautious.
1: And we've spoken a lot on the show before about how what's happening in the, in the markets doesn't match really what's happening in the real economy. Is, is there a downside to all this uh, jubilant frothiness in the markets?
4: Well, it depends. Downside for whom? For the companies, apart from the fact that, as you say, on the debt side, they will need to pay that back there really isn't all that much downside. They are managing to raise capital as cheaply as they have ever really been able to pretty much in history. What it certainly does is the divide between superstar firms and also RANS is nothing new in the corporate landscape. And like with many things, the, the pandemic has accelerated that trend. So the superstar firms are getting starrier, and also RANDs are falling further behind. So long as the superstar firms do not become rent-seeking monopolies, it might well be good news for consumers and their customers. For the investors, it is almost certain that some of the money that they're spending will get torched. That always happens, but as far as the companies are concerned, especially the corporate winners, there is only sort of more to look forward to.
1: And so what do you see happening as we go into 2021? Will all these dynamics continue to be in play? Will companies continue to to raise record amounts of capital?
4: Well, it's hard to keep breaking records year in, year out. But for the time being, capital is almost certainly going to keep flowing. And the reason for that is that there are no prospects of investors getting any meaningful returns from any safe investments such as treasuries. Those yields are likely to remain very low for the foreseeable future. And while that is the case, companies can expect to be able to raise capital rather cheaply. And for many of the pandemic's corporate winners, it looks like a win-win.
1: Jan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. If you're a corporate titan or a startup looking for cash, 2020 has clearly been good to you. But what about if you're an investor? This week, Money Talks, our sister show on business and finance, looks at what's been driving this year's market mania and if there's a bubble in all that froth. It's always tempting to point to very rapidly rising asset prices and call bubble. This abundance of leaps and crashes, halvings, doublings, and even sextuplings, if you look at the share prices of Tesla this year, have given investors whiplash and exhaustion. Look for Money Talks wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded.
0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: The
2: Tunga landfill is at the northern edge of Lusaka, the capital of Zambia.
1: Ivantika Chulkati is an international correspondent at The Economist.
2: And just imagine a 24-hectare moonscape. It's just mountains and mountains of rubbish that spontaneously combust and emit this really horrible sour smoke. Hello,
0: hello. Okay. Okay.
2: And when you look around the landfill, there's hundreds of people. You can see these small figures. And they've also managed to sort the scrap. So every now and then you get on top of a mountain of rubbish a really organized tidy pile, a bag or a stack of plastics or cardboard. spaces?
4: 24 hectares is the whole
2: chunga. I was shown around the dump by a man called Moses Malenga who's a superintendent at the landfill.
4: So these guys are taking to their plants. These are uh, Recycling companies, they come to buy off what these people are separating. Mm. Yeah, mainly, what they're separating is plastics, uh, paper. Yeah.
2: There are about 600 waste pickers all together who patrol this landfill, who are there harvesting scraps. And I was just there to try and understand more about what they do. I wanted to know about the work of the waste picker, particularly in the middle of a public health emergency.
1: And what did the waste pickers tell you?
2: Moses and I met a man called Wesley Cambezi.
4: Oh, you speak English.
2: And Wesley, to me, was sort of a picture of poverty. He had just a beanie and sneakers as protection. And these sneakers were odd sneakers. One was a pull-on shoe, one was a lace-up shoe, and they were totally caked in mud. So there were flies just buzzing around his ankles. And Wesley said that he works nine-hour days. And his job's never been simple, right? The local authorities every now and then threaten to close down the landfill. And what he does is he sells the recyclables he finds to middlemen who wait at the edges of the dump. And these guys take a really big margin before they sell that material on to the recyclers. But this year in particular, he said his work's been very hard because of rising poverty in Lusaka, because of the pandemic. That's what he's saying, that people have
4: come to learn that there's money recycling. So most of the plastic which used to come here stopped coming.
2: That basically means there's more people in the city center who are scavenging, they're taking out the recyclables before it makes it into the site where Mr. Cambezi can access it.
1: And how much does the waste management industry rely on informal workers like Mr. Cambysi?
2: There's somewhere between 19 and 24 million workers in the waste industry around the world, and all but four million of them work informally. They're a particularly big help in poor countries, um, where local governments really struggle to keep cities clean. Even before the pandemic, local municipalities in poor countries were only able to collect about half the rubbish in cities and about a quarter outside cities. It was down to the informal industry to pick up all the slack. In Brazil, for example, these informal workers collect 90% of municipal waste. In the pandemic, formal services are particularly stretched, so the informal workers become even more important.
1: It sounds as if the pandemic is also stretching those waste pickers.
2: Yeah, so also whilst I was in Lusaka, I visited a slum community called Kanyama, where I met people who collect waste door to door, and households usually pay them for the service.
4: Waste has gone up because a lot of people are indoors, but the amount to pay for waste has come down. because people are not working, they are indoors.
2: The trouble is, they told me that this year people are out of work they're hard up, and and they're basically refusing to pay for the service. In a way, these collectors are the lucky people in the informal sector because they have contracts to collect rubbish. In a lot of the world, the waste pickers don't have that. They're just looking for recyclables in dumpsters, in public spaces, and they're totally reliant on what a trader will buy from them. They have no steady income. And for those guys who rely on the recycling industry they're also being hurt by falling scrap prices. In the pandemic, lots of countries have closed their borders, and the recycling industry is incredibly international. So if a company can't move scrap from a dump in Zambia to its big facility over the border, they've been closing them down and basically stopped buying scrap.
1: And I suppose the pandemic also raises the issue of the safety of the stuff they're picking.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we know that the coronavirus survives one day on cardboard, at least two days on steel, three days on plastic. And these are people who are not equipped. They don't have the PPE and the hand-washing facilities to deal with that. And what's particularly worrying is medical waste, the proliferation of medical waste in poor cities that really aren't able to handle it. In China's Hubei province, for example, there was a 370% increase in medical waste just as the COVID 19 outbreak began. So imagine what that looks like when it's replicated in lots of other poor cities.
1: And has there been any support from authorities of this informal sector during the pandemic?
2: Yes, this is really interesting. It depends totally where they are. At one extreme, you have often the workers in sub Saharan Africa, these guys generally work alone. They don't come together, they don't form associations. But in the Latin American cities, you'll get waste workers that have managed to organise into cooperatives. And these guys are doing much, much better. In places like Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo, these pickers basically collect rubbish for the local authorities, for the private businesses. And these guys provide basically a steady income, so scrap prices aren't as much of a concern This year, they've helped with masks and gloves and hand-washing facilities.
1: And could that kind of organization happen in a place like Lusaka?
2: Absolutely, but it just won't come quickly or easily. Organization of this industry just seems to come with economic development. So generally what happens is a city gets richer, its public starts demanding good waste management and the government starts looking to the private sector, to big companies to provide that service. And it's at that point that waste pickers often look around, realise their industry is under threat and organise. It's taken decades and decades in places like Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, to get the recognition for the industry, to start gathering data and to get laws in place. COVID-19 is not going to guarantee that, But my hope would be that the pandemic at least gets recognition for waste workers around the world and lasts as the pandemic subsides.
1: Avantika, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Twenty years ago, a tiny boat loaded with explosives approached the USS Cole, a destroyer that was refueling in a harbor in Yemen. When it blew up, it tore a hole in the ship, killing 17 sailors. The terrorist group Al Qaeda claimed responsibility. Since then, America's Navy has been coming up with novel ways to warn vessels not to come too close. A handheld bullhorn won't do it, so they've created ever larger versions. But a newer effort gets all that sound power into a smaller package.
3: The Focused Enhanced Acoustic Driver Technologies, or feet, it's simply a louder loudspeaker. It's a mega-megaphone. It's a way of projecting sound out to much longer distances than before. David Hambling writes about science for The Economist and the aim here is to be able to convey a voice message that can be understood over a range of two kilometres. But they're going to need to find ways of making it more easily comprehensible. The idea is it's going to be used from ships to warn small boats approaching them.
0: You are approaching a United States warship operating in international waters. Your identity is unknown and your intentions are unclear.
3: But the US Marines will also be using it in situations, for example, when a car is approaching a checkpoint, it'll be a way of warning them at long range.
1: And how does it work? How do you make a loudspeaker louder?
3: Well, there's a number of existing devices around which already do a similar job, but they are pretty big and pretty cumbersome. There's a thing called LRAD, long-range acoustic device, which has to be mounted on a vehicle. What they're looking for is something more the size of a bullhorn. And to do that, they're using basically the same technology that's used in domestic loudspeakers, but in a very much amped-up form. So they're going to be using more powerful magnets and a stronger substance for the diaphragm so it can withstand greater forces. And the idea there is to have something that will work at low frequencies, because it's the low frequencies that make voice messages understandable, and also low frequencies are very much better at penetrating inside buildings and inside vehicles.
1: So it's just a matter, essentially, of beefing up an existing technology.
3: Some of it is about just beefing up the existing technology, but they're also trying to introduce a couple of new techniques. One of them is this approach known as beamforming, which is commonly used with radar systems, with radio waves. The idea of that is that by combining the output from several sources, you can get a focused beam of sound that carries much better over long range. And the other thing is borrowing a technique to cancel out atmospheric distortion, This is something that's used with telescopes at the moment. It's a way of detecting the kind of distortion that's going on and then applying software to reverse it. So the idea is to send out sound in a way that will counteract the scrambling effects of the air so you will then get a clear message right at the far end.
0: You must leave. If you do not disperse, you may be
3: arrested and or subject to other police action.
1: I mean, it sounds as if this could be used for more than just communication. I mean, it functionally, a, a sonic weapon.
3: Well, they're keen not to position it as a weapon, but the existing LRADS, which are used by the Navy and also by U.S. police forces, have something that they call an aversive tone, which other people call a sound weapon or a, a sonic cannon. This is where it projects an intolerable loud noise to drive people out of an area, and it's seen as a way of breaking up protests and riots. There's a number of groups who've warned that it can cause hearing damage. And it was interesting that during the Black Lives Matter protests, the mayor of Portland, Oregon, actually ordered police not to use this warning tone function against protesters. So there is a recognition that it's not necessarily harmless.
1: But if they're made cheaper, smaller, more portable, then they would likely be more prone to misuse, no?
3: Yes, that's certainly the case. Where you've only got one device on a vehicle, it's relatively easy to keep track of what's happening. However, if you've got dozens of these devices all over the place, it becomes very much harder to prove any use of them. And it also means they're going to be going down the chain, so they will be in the hands of people who are perhaps less experienced and with less authority and who may be more prone to misuse them.
1: David, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.